Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me. This is the Mindfulness Movement and Exercise Podcast number eight. And we are going to talk about why learning and mindful movement go hand in hand. This is part one because there's a lot that can be said for this topic. But before we begin, let's recap what we talked about last time. Last time we talked about the origins of a pretty popular movement in the exercise and fitness world called the Cossack Squat. And you learned that the Cossack Squat actually originated in a Ukrainian dance from the 1600s called the Hopic Dance. It's a dynamic, athletic, impressive looking dance that involves a lot of jumping, a lot of squatting, a lot of hopping. And it isn't performed with the heel down. So the caustic squat, when the dance is being performed, is a way to transition, which is very different than the caustic squats that are performed in a fitness setting. In a fitness setting, generally speaking, the practitioner isn't going anywhere. They're not using the movement as a way to transition from one place to another, which changes the intention of the movement. In the fitness world, it is frequently taught that the Cossack squat should be performed with the heel down. There's a number of reasons for this. But does it need to be performed with the heel down? Depends on the intention of the exercise. So when the goal behind the movement is different, the rules, and I'm using air quotes here, behind the movement are also going to be different. It's just something to think about because so often we become attached to the rules or the way something is initially taught and we don't ponder, well, what happens if I do it a different way? What would be the purpose of me doing it a different way? Which brings us to today's topic. But before we dive into it, go ahead and try this. I want you to come into a comfortable seated position. If you're not driving and you're in a place where you can close your eyes, go ahead and close your eyes. I want you to imagine that you are standing at the base of a hiking trail. You're surrounded by trees on either side. You can hear water moving nearby the sound of a stream, maybe a river. Though if it's a river, it's not moving very fast. The air smells a forest. The path ahead of you is rocky. You begin walking. Cautious of where you place your feet. As you walk, you start to get a little more comfortable. You realize the rocks aren't as slippery as you initially thought. So your pace picks up a little bit. The path begins to wind. As it winds, you see a steep grade ahead of you. There are more rocks. This time, they're a little looser. You can see at the top of the incline that there is a clearing. You walk slowly, 
using your arms for balance. Acutely aware that you could fall. The sound of the stream falls away and you hear just the sound of your feet and your breath as you make your way up the incline. Your breath becomes a little more shallow. The incline pitches even more. You catch a glimpse of a tree that's fallen off to your right. You continue to make your way up the incline. Your left foot slips. You quickly recalibrate it so you can continue moving up the hill. You sense your heartbeat in your chest. The pitch is rather intense. Finally, you pause as you approach the clearing. You've come to the top of the hill. You look out. There are no trees on this part of the path. You see hills in the distance. The sound of your breath quiets. You hear the little bit of breeze and you feel it as it touches your skin. You turn away from the view and you begin to walk again. Go ahead and open your eyes. So that's an example of a guided imagery. Guided imagery is a fancy name for what you may think of as visualization. Visualization, well, guided imagery, is considered a mindfulness technique. And the goal behind guided imagery is to utilize many senses so that you can visualize a picture of something. I chose to utilize the sense of touch, the sense of your body as it was moving, the visual sense of your eyes, the sense of your ears, the sense of your nose. And as you try to imagine this picture that I attempted to paint for you, you're going to use different aspects of your brain because you're using different senses. This is a technique that has been used for centuries. And researchers are only just now beginning to dive into what exactly this particular technique, why it's beneficial and what it can do. The idea has always been that it's good for stress reduction, but why? What is it doing? Turns out one of the things that it's doing is giving you an opportunity to practice attentional control. And the early stages of this research shows that it may actually improve your attentional control. Attentional control is exactly what it sounds like. It's your ability to pay attention without letting your mind wander into something else. 
there's a number of benefits behind attentional control, one of which I'm going to talk about in just a second. But within the realm of nervous system regulation, learning, and optimizing arousal, one of the things this type of guided visualization, guided imagery does is it gives you a chance to practice something stressful in a non-stressful environment. This is a great way to regulate your arousal and observe your response to something. And you can use guided imagery for anything, which is actually really cool. So with that, let's go ahead and get into today's episode. We're talking about learning. And one of the things I should also point out before we, before I get into some of what learning is, is when you're paying attention to something, noise decreases. I was purposefully directing your attention to various things, which is going to take your attention away from the three types of noise that we've talked about, informational, internal, and auditory. Reducing noise is a really effective way to maximize your ability to pay attention which is helpful, again, for this whole learning thing. So what is learning? The definition of learning, which I actually thought was really interesting because I'd never looked it up, is the acquisition of knowledge or skills through experience, study, or by being taught. So think about this for a second. There are a number of ways we can actually learn something. We can experience something and that teaches us something. We can study something and that teaches us something. And we can be taught by someone that teaches us something. So what happens if we use all three of these ideas? Would our ability to learn be expanded? maybe, perhaps, instead of just relying on one of these ways versus the other, instead of relying on just experience or just study or just by being taught? What happens in the brain when you learn? Well, there's some cool things that happen. It literally changes because of something called neuroplasticity. This occurs because your neurons in your brain, which are your brain cells, they make new connections. These new connections allow you to remember and allow you to draw from that memory when a similar situation presents itself. It allows you to recognize patterns. Kind of an amazing thing. One of the molecules that plays a key role in allowing the brain cells to connect with each other is something called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which to shorten that is BDNF. Conveniently, BDNF expression, which means how much of it is floating around in the bloodstream, 
available for use increases with aerobic exercise. So when you go out for a walk or when you go out for a run or when you go out for a bike ride or when you go for a swim, BDNF is more available for use. Also interestingly, in people who are clinically depressed, they have less BDNF floating around to start with, which means learning is a little more challenging. I shouldn't say it like that. It just means maybe their capacity for learning, that's not even, I don't even really wanna say that. This whole learning thing is really important. For people that are clinically depressed, increasing their BDNF can assist with curiosity and the ease with which connections are made. In order for learning to be effective, I think this is important, multiple areas of the brain need to be recreated for the learning task. What does that mean? When you engage multiple senses, it's going to be easier to learn, essentially. Now think about something like arousal. If you're really tired, so your arousal level is super low, is it gonna be hard or easy to make new connections? What about if you're in a really stressful situation? You just got some really bad news. The, there's major construction going on in your house, which is where you're trying to study. Do you think it's be hard or easy to make new connections? Things like memory, different senses, volitional control, which in a movement context simply means the initiation of voluntary movement. So volitional control can also be thought of as voluntary movement. And higher levels of cognitive fun functioning are all implicated in this learning process. So all of these things are affected when you learn. So when you think about something, again, like aerobic exercise, we could say cardiovascular exercise is good for the heart and good for your memory. Now, again, I just asked you, like, what is the optimal arousal situation? Like, what, what happens if you're really low arousal? What happens if you're really high arousal? Generally speaking, it's harder to learn. It's harder to draw from these things. So there's kind of this Goldilocks zone, this moderate arousal level, where it's easier for some of these connections to make place. This is partially due to cortisol, which gets a really bad rap. And cortisol is your arousal hormone. It's a way to think of it. It's the it, Yes, it is your stress hormone. But what is stress? Stress is simply the ability to pay attention. It's what makes you alert. 
you need a moderate amount of stress in order to maximize your alertness and learning benefits. So for instance, I think I've mentioned on here before that I do both pull and aerial silks. I'm gonna use an example of aerial silks. I have a horrible time remembering a lot of what I, I was taught the previous time in silks class. I don't know why the movements are very new to me, the action of holding onto fabric and wrapping my body in it, it's all very new. So it's challenging for me to remember and draw connections. Pull was different. Pull, I was able to see elements of some of the low flow acrobatics that I've done, some of the handstand work that I've done. There were some similarities with other things that I had done that I was able to draw from. But silks, that has been much less the case. The one thing I was taught and I was able to remember right away was how to wrap my body in order to do a drop. And if you think about that, there's moderate stress with that. I need the wrap to be secure or I can potentially fall and land on my back on the big thick gymnastics pad. This is not ideal. Plus, I'm a little bit high up. So again, I am, my cortisol levels are a little bit elevated in this situation. More so than when I'm just learning how to wrap my foot in an upright position. And I have found this consistently to be true. The higher level skills, I have a much easier time remembering than the lower level skills. But again, there's this alertness thing that has to happen. It's not that I'm not alert when I'm trying to learn the lower level skills. It's just not quite as high of an alertness as some of the higher level skills. Now, someone else may feel very differently. Someone else may be petrified of heights or the idea of dropping. And so they might feel that once they got to that, it was harder to remember because the arousal level was too high. Or conversely, maybe somebody has done this drop a million times and someone's trying to teach them a different way to wrap. The arousal level might be pretty low because they already know how to do it. It's familiar. It's not interesting. So again, Goldilocks zone. And what is a moderate stressor for someone might not be a moderate stressor for someone else. Active learning means that the student is engaged with the material through decision-making, association, and motiva motivation. So if we go back to my Ariel Silks example, I am motivated. I want to learn how to do this stuff. So that's not an issue. Association is a bit of an issue because I don't have anything to associate it to. I don't have something familiar to associate it to. And decision making is a little bit of an issue because I don't really know what my options are because I haven't done it enough. I learned a move just last week that was super familiar for me because it looked similar to something that I've done in poll. So suddenly I have this frame of reference to draw from and I can already tell it's going to be easier for me to replicate that this week 
than a lot of the other skills that have been taught to me. There is a book that was written by a French professor of cognitive psychology named Stanislas Dehaene. I think that's how you say it. It's called How We Learn. It lays out four pillars of learning, and I really liked his approach. It is consistent with everything that the literature suggests. He just puts it in a really succinct way. The four pillars of learning are attention, active engagement, error feedback, and consolidation. What do these things mean? Attention. Can you pay attention to the task? Can you pay attention to the guided imagery of yourself walking up a steep hill? Within the guided imagery stuff, like I've given a guided imagery of getting into the water before for, for a group that I teach. And it was interesting because turned out, I didn't know this at the time, you know, you're, I was trying to choose a guided imagery that would feel relevant for this group of 35 um, men and women who had a lot of life experience. Someone in there was petrified of water really disliked the water and on top of it really disliked cold water which was the example that I gave so guided imagery can also kind of trigger some stuff if you offer the wrong imagery for someone or someone might not quite feel the imagery is interesting so with my guided imagery at the beginning whether you were able to focus on it and pay attention to it is going to depend on your life experience and if you were able to draw any associations from it. One of the things with attentional control that starts to come with, I'm gonna say with experience of a lot of different levels, experience of life, experience of practicing this stuff, is you're able to draw more connections, disparate connections even. There is a term for this in the creativity research, which is escaping me at this present moment, but it's the ability to draw connections between two very different things and figure out how you can apply them and work them together. And this is a cool thing. So again, your ability to pay attention is going to come from your ability to practice paying attention. How often do you practice paying attention? And your previous experiences? Are you actively engaged in the subject matter? Is it interesting to you? If it's not interesting to you, can you we find a workaround, find a place to kind of ease in there and make it interesting for you? Is there some element to it that you can connect to something else that would suddenly make it more relevant? Error feedback. When you attempt whatever the thing is, if you're studying for a history test and you take a quiz asking you to recall some of the facts that you had previously learned, are you told whether your answers are right or wrong? And if your answers are wrong, are you told what the correct answer should be? There's some fascinating research in the learning stuff that regular quizzing 
does wonders for improving retention and retrieval. And regular quizzing with the intention of getting feedback. You get also get feedback, for instance, when you're doing a motor task and like, let's say I'm doing a handstand. If I don't hold my handstand at the top, I'm getting feedback that I was not effective, that I need to do something else. Do I know what the something else is? Maybe, maybe not. This is where a coach or a teacher can come in. They can look and say, oh, what happens if you do it this way? So error feedback can come in a lot of different forms. It can also come from, for instance, if you write, if you write something and you send it to your editor and your editor sends it back and says, okay, here's my feedback. Is your writing wrong per se? Maybe, maybe not. But someone else looking at it can give you information or look at it in a way that perhaps you hadn't thought of before. Consolidation, how do you make sense of all of this information? How do you put it all together? I like to say learning happens in the in-between times because your brain is processing at this low level, this stuff that you're being exposed to and learning without you realizing it. So sleeping does wonders for consolidation. Taking breaks and rest from whatever it is that you're doing does wonders for consolidation. And what does all of this have to do with movement and exercise? Well, if we truly have an interest in mind-body exercise, or mindfulness-based exercise, then that suggests there's going to be an element of learning. It also suggests that when we look at how learning occurs, that maybe it's not always in this really relaxed, slow way. Maybe sometimes learning would be better off performed in a way that was a little more stressful. Not a lot more, but a little more. And maybe people need an opportunity to try things on their own without any feedback until they have stopped. Because processing, you have to remember that when there's processing going on, if you talk to someone as they're doing something, they're suddenly trying to process a lot of things at once. And if it's a new skill that the person is trying to learn, if you're talking to them as they are trying to perform the new skill, that's a lot of information coming in. And some of it is going to be perceived as noise. So understanding these things can really help both the practitioner and the coach start to 
get more perhaps from their movement and their exercise process. Because I already said at the very beginning that BDNF, which happens, which is that protein that allows our neurons to connect, that it's increased during aerobic exercise. We are primed for doing this. Like it's amazing how exercise primes the system. So can exercise be not only a primer of the system, can it, can it be a way to connect the mind and the body? I think it can. I'm going to end with this quote, which I found in a paper about putting neuroscience in the classroom, how the brain changes as we learn. Teachers, of course, play a central role in guiding a child's learning experiences. The way a teacher focuses the student's attention can affect the nature of learning-induced changes in specific brain circuits. The, there's a whole long thing about a research paper, research study that was done. But they conclude by saying this adds to a growing body of work, suggesting that with their instructional choices, teachers can play a significant role in helping to direct learning, which may have an impact on which brain circuits are changing as a result. So the way in which we teach the way in which we receive the information directly impacts the changes in our brain. Thank you so much for joining me. If you have any questions, suggestions, or feedback, feel free to drop it in the comments or shoot me an email. And I will be back next week with part two. All right. Thank you.